Coming up, a conversation with Scott Hiller, Colorado Springs City Council District 3 candidate. This is 6035 Media. Casting an informed vote is your right and your duty as a citizen. I'm Brian Grossman, Executive Editor at 6035. And I'm Shelley Roars, spokesperson for the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. We're teaming up to bring you conversations with the candidates in the April 2023 Colorado Spring City election. So this interview is both an episode of the 6035 Vote Podcast. And the League's Making Democracy Work Podcast. So let's get to it. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. Um, Why don't you get us started? The first question is kind of... Tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself and why you're running. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, My name is Scott Hiller. I'm running for City Council District 3. I was um, born in Houston, Texas in a lower middle class neighborhood on the southwest side. Um, Because my neighborhood was a bit rough, my parents ended up sending my sister and I to private school at uh, great sacrifice to themselves. And uh, my sister and I are very grateful for uh, what they were able to do for us. Um, After that, I attended St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. I studied math, science, and business and ended up with a BS in geophysics. Um, Currently, I am the chief of geosciences for a national coastal engineering firm. I work with geologists and geophysicists doing large-scale geohazard analysis and uh, investigations for megascale infrastructure projects. So I have a great deal of experience with uh, both the science and the business side of uh, developing large-scale offshore infrastructure. Um, My wife and I moved to Colorado Springs about five years ago when we realized that essentially none of my clients knew where I was, so I could move anywhere in the world. (laughs) And given the choice of moving anywhere in the world, we picked Colorado Springs, and we did it on purpose because it is such a great place, and as we all know. But um, after being here for a while, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that the government in the city and the city council specifically is a bit homogenous in thought. And for an area that is so complex and so diverse and growing, certainly, Uh, the city council being a problem-solving body, a, you know, a thought-provoking body um, needs to be nurtured. And for that to happen, we have to have a diversity of thought on the council. So what I mean by that is many of the people, just based on the nature of the springs, are related to either the real estate business, some sort of um, auxiliary function to that business, or the military. And so a lot of other um, trains of thought and perspectives have been missing. And for me specifically, I'm a scientist. I view the world uh, through that lens, and I approach problems through that lens. And so I think that that perspective is lacking on the council, and I hope to bring that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Brian? All right, Scott, let's get specific. Uh, Here's a water and development question. What's your stand on the 128% water rule? Uh, and for extending water and other utilities to flagpole annex developments. Yes. So the 100% uh, water rule, as I understand, as it was passed, um, does not affect all development in the city. And that is a big red flag for me. Um, It doesn't seem like a very fair allocation to single out developments, especially for something as critical as water. Once we've, once we've used all the water that's been allocated, that's all there is. Only so much snow falls on the mountains, only so much water comes through the pipes. And so securing that amount 
understanding that amount and using it wisely are extremely important for us, especially since we live in a semi-arid climate where 80% of our water is directly imported from the other side of the continental divide. We're already vulnerable, and so doling out this resource like we're water-rich is not very responsible. Directly to that water ordinance, I don't believe it goes far enough because it is not fair in that it exempts everything in the city. If water is short, and I'm on water restrictions, I know most of us are on water restrictions, and the renegotiations are coming for the Colorado River allotments, knowing that these are coming and that we're on these kind of restrictions, it doesn't seem prudent to me to start doling things out. Either we're all in this together or we're not. Okay, thank you. Shelley. So um, kind of another question about water. It's kind of important around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's two-prong. It's um, one about we do waste a lot of water. Landscaping, 78% used towards water. Certainly. Whether it's the resort with the broken sprinkler system that doesn't fix it for a couple of days or the city-owned public golf course that needs curb appeal. And as a realtor, I understand curb appeal. Mm-hmm. Or my neighbor who decides to plant Kentucky bluegrass in his yard, right? So, um, and that's not even, you know, including the developments that are, you know, we do understand future developments or, you know, there are restrictions and zoning and that stuff. How can we do better with regards to landscaping and, and saving water and not wasting so much? And the second part is as a part, being a part of a regional water provider that we talk about, should the city consider extending water and other utilities to those subdivisions located outside the city that might never be annexed? So I um, can answer your second question first. Um, I would say no, uh, that we should not extend water to those regions um, until we understand exactly what's going on. Now, if we find out that we have a surplus of water and we're able to extend water um, to neighbors who need it, I don't have a problem with that. The problem I have at the moment is that we don't seem to have a very good grasp on how much water we have, how much is being used, and where we can save. And so the unbridled growth, the continued growth, every time you build a house, that's another tap. Every time you build a hotel, that's additional taps that are using this water. Until we know what's going on, really nothing seems very prudent to me, even in filling in the city. Those estimates were made many, many years ago with what appear to be incorrect estimates about the Colorado River, and certainly with expectations of an amount of water coming uh, that may not come in the future. If we receive you know, upwards of a 30% water cut to the city, all of those estimates for the past have to be remade. Um, Directly in terms of landscaping, as I mentioned before, we're a semi-arid, nearly aeolian desert. And so it's very expensive and very wasteful to, like you said, grow Kentucky bluegrass or nice St. Augustine, you know, Georgia grass here. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong here. So we have to balance private property rights and the ability for someone who wants to pay a lot of money to have green grass with the reality that water is a scarce resource here. And I think in that case, the scarcity and the threat to the general safety um, supersedes that private property interest. I think we ought to look into ordinances that define the types of landscaping that are appropriate based on water allocation. Yes. Yes, Thank you. Certainly. 
Brian? You mentioned uh, private property rights. So that's a good segue. Uh, let's change gears a little bit. Where do you stand on accessory dwelling units being allowed in single-family residential areas? Uh, wonderful. So that, to me, just sounds like an oxymoron. Okay. Um, if it is a single-family residential area, then you can't have two families on a plot or it would no longer be a single-family residential area. Mm-hmm. Um, where I live on the west side, there's a lot of R2 property. And a lot of that R2 property is a single-family large main house with an accessory dwelling unit behind it. It's appropriately zoned and appropriately dense for where we are. By adding a second dwelling unit to R1 areas, you effectively double the allowed density. That has an effect on both property values and on safety, especially in the west side, District 3, where I am, in the uh, wildland urban interface, there are some questionable statistics and information about our evacuation times due to fire. And that's a real concern. So by instantly basically eliminating the R1 zone and doubling everything from Pleasant Valley, you know, up to uh, the Constellation area, that doesn't seem like a very wise decision. Okay. Thank you. Shelly? Yes, sir. Um, Also about housing. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing, affordable housing attainability, affordable housing issues, crisis, however you want to classify it, we have issues, right? What's your plan from if, you know, you're in my district, this is District 3, this is my district, whether you represent District 3 or, you know, the whole betterment of the community, what's your plan there? So... The affordable housing crisis, and it's certainly, you know, if you speak to anyone nationally who's trying to find a place to live, it it is a crisis. I mean, shelter is a basic need. So the main issue with that I see is that it's national. I have a lot of friends and family elsewhere in the country, and they don't seem to have different problems. It doesn't seem to be a Colorado or even a Colorado Springs-specific issue. And so when I think about what the city council specifically can do to alleviate this issue, most of the solutions um, involve government fixing of pricing, government fixing of rate increases, tax incentives, and things like that to artificially either inflate supply or reduce demand or increase demand somewhere else. In general, I'm very leery of things that do that. Because like most forces of nature, the market is honestly a force of nature, supply and demand. If you artificially mess with it, you really risk doing yourself a disservice in the future. Now, we don't know enough about, honestly, about what's going on for the next three to five years. I've seen a lot of conflicting data about where housing is headed in this city. I know a lot of people are saying that we are chronically underbuilt. There is other data that shows that we are potentially overbuilt. That discussion can be had, but the data is the data. Whatever is truth, that will come out, and we can make decisions based on that. But when someone is asking, what should we do proactively, like honestly do, the only things that I can think we can do are maintaining the robustness of the infrastructure, the transportation, the parks and services that draw people here to begin with. The supply and demand and ultimately the price of housing will be fixed by those market forces, interest rates, things like that. But um, I'm just – I'm very leery of jumping in and, and um, artificially messing with that. Okay. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, let's talk public safety. Uh, Colorado Springs Police Department is short uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 officers from authorized strength. Um, and this is while crime and traffic crashes are on the rise. What do you do about public safety and the police department in, in particular? So the, the number one thing that we have to do is attract good officers who want to stay. Colorado and the Springs are a very desirable place to live. That means that people who want to be police officers want to live here too. And so we have to facilitate that and not just facilitate that, but really focus on it. Our compensation package, when I look at that, while it's, it's you know, averagely generous, if we want exceptional service, we have to compensate in an exceptional way. Since public safety is so integral to our experience here in the spring, I think that a more financially based focus on the police force has to happen. Why would somebody not want to be a police officer in Colorado Springs? It may be because the starting salary is somewhere near 60000 whereas somewhere in California, it's upwards of 120000 Now, we're not the same as Malibu, certainly not, and I'm not suggesting that. But if we want exceptional service, we must compensate in an exceptional way, and that's the only way to do it. If you're paying low and you're expecting all of these things, you're expecting sacrifice, you're expecting them to work overtime and to do all of these things for us, but you're not paying them very well, I, I understand the shortfall. Okay. Thank you. Shelley? Um, so I kind of have a question on that. Um, uh-huh. So because you asked in, in a minute if we have time about increasing, how do you fund that, right? If you're going to pay more, that's a possible tax increase for me or when I think about it, right? Mm-hmm. How would you fund that? I was saving my tax increase question. I know. But no, but yeah, we'll, I know. <laughs> he, he just mentioned no, 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 it. No, but I specifically about, so, and, and yeah. I did have the same question. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. That's, that's a great question. So what I've seen of the budget and just the general sense that I get of what's going on is that we can fund most of the things that need to be done by sharpening our pencils. I don't see any reason to impose additional taxes on any of the taxpayers of the Springs. We have a nearly you know, $420 million general fund budget. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the Parks Department was 8% of that budget. It's now dropped to, you know, 4%, 6%. We're spending $5 million less this year than we did last year. So somebody's moving the money around. Now, I have not gone line by line through the budget, but that is the function of the the city council. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that just with some good perspective and some good pencil sharpening, we can allocate money where it needs to be. To me, it seems much more of a, of a priority issue versus a fiscal issue. We have the money to do these things. Okay, and I know you said you hadn't gone over it line by line, but just off the top of your head, any ideas on sharpening that pencil on how to reallocate at all? Yes, yes. One of them, very strangely, the, um, uh, the LART tax. Um, the LART. Now, I, there's a, a, a lot of conflicting information about this, but I think the taxation really needs to be straightforward. And if it is that confusing, then it needs to be reworked to be straightforward. So LART number one is paid for by people who are coming into the city. They're not the people in the actual city. This is There's the a, lodgers and auto rental, just for people lo, who lodge, aren't familiar. Yeah. Correct. Lodging lodgers and auto, and auto rental. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are there's certainly a group of people within the city who are using lodging services and using car rental services who you could then say, well, those are local people paying mm-hmm. that tax. However, that money seems to go directly into marketing. And we're marketing the crown jewel of Colorado as a place to go. 
well, that seems like saying that we're paying to tell people that water is wet. <laughs> that's really strange. So that's one example where while I understand that there is a board and they're very interested in the marketing and, and advocating for Colorado Springs, and I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. The amount of money that they seem to allocate towards that just just seems strange. Okay. So there's one example. Thank you. Can I Good. clarify that one? Yes, so would sir. you then recommend taking LART money to help pay for police? Because that's what it sounds like. And I know that LART is specifically so that's for what, attracting people to Colorado Springs. Correct. Right. Um, to answer that directly, it would just be that it depends. Something that specific, okay. we'd, have to go, we'd have to go through. But the idea would be exactly that, that where, where money is being spent in either a uh, nonsensical or redundant way mm. that would be allocated towards things like parks, police, and water infrastructure. Okay, thanks. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean no, to. No, yeah, see back, back to question. you. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, one of the things that we deal with on the west side, right? You go over to the King Supers or the Safeway mm-hmm. over there on Colorado Avenue or Uinta is um, homelessness. Right. Right. Police are being called out for calls all the time unnecessarily. It's not their. It's just not in their job description. At least it should not be, in my opinion. Sorry, it shouldn't be. Excuse me, my opinion. Um, planned. How do you do, how do you address the homelessness issue? Because there are many reasons they're out there. Whether that's that PTSD, right? Uh, they just choose to be there. Some choose it. Mm-hmm. Some don't. They're kicked out of their home at a young age for their own choices. Mm-hmm. Um, other ones are mental issues. So that's a whole bunch of issues you got to kind of deal with. What right. are your thoughts there? Well, I think you nailed it. And it's that we like to put this whole situation under the umbrella of the homeless or the homelessness, that situation. But they're not homogenous. They're a very diverse group of people. Mm-hmm. In fact, the majority of homeless people who or people experiencing homelessness in our town, you don't see. They aren't on the street. They're in the city trying to work through it. They're getting services. They're in the shelters. This is a vast majority of people. Outside of that, you have, there was a statistic I saw, and I certainly won't, uh, you know, claim that this is exactly accurate, but it's somewhere around 400 people in the city are chronically homeless who are not willing to accept services or anything like that. So the problem then shrinks a little bit. You know, when you say there's 3,000 or so homeless people within the springs, true, but 2,500 of them are already in the system working through. And so you, the approach must be twofold. For the vast majority who are in the system, we provide robust services, very robust services that are able to help the people who want to help themselves. This is a vast majority of people. For the minority who, like you say, either have PTSD, um, just want to live in a tent in my neighbor's driveway or whatever it is that they are doing, we have to decide as a city where the line is. So when we say that it's fine that people are sleeping in the parks, it's one thing. But we've already defined that it's not okay to use our streams and water supplies as toilets, yet they do. So we must increase the police presence and the police um, the police mechanism to deal with that because people will not stop. Now, when it comes to the mentally ill and things like that, whether you, whether you bring in a police officer or not, they're not in a position to understand really what's going on. And someone like that, again, robust services in the city, but without active engagement and active intervention, that person, 
tragically is in a very bad spot. I have a, a personal um, instance of this where a, a person experiencing homelessness was literally sleeping outside on my neighbor's driveway for nine months with nothing, no tent, no blankets, nothing, just laying on my neighbor's driveway for nine months. Obviously, this person is mentally ill and needs help. This person is not a criminal. They need help, and we need to see that they get it. But as you said at the beginning, we have to be smart and we have to target these things towards the populations. We can't just say it's a general homeless problem. Here's the hammer to, to fix it. So thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You borrowed my tax question, so I'm going to borrow your city council pay. Okay. Uh, city councilors right now make $6,250 a year, uh, right. not really a livable wage, mm -hmm. uh, and it sort of restricts who can run for and serve on city council. Uh, what's your opinion about city council pay and raising it? So I, in general, I would not be opposed to raising the pay because it would allow for other others who are not able to get on council. And to my original point, the council specifically needs to be diverse. We need to have people from all walks of life, all income levels, different professions, different genders, everything. Any diversity that we can bring into this problem-solving group will be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so I would support it for that reason and that reason alone. Mm -hmm. There is some merit to the argument that by keeping it low, what you get is only people who want to do it on basically a volunteer basis. Mm -hmm. I do see the point of that, but in general, I think the pay is too restrictive and does us a disservice. And if you were to wave a magic wand and change pay overnight, is there uh, something you think would be more suitable? Um, I think making it uh, – probably equal to the El Paso County commissioners might be just a fair way to go from that. What we would need to make sure of is that um, so that there's no, um, uh, no appearance of impropriety, any increase to the salary would have to be active only after the next election. Mm -hmm. So it could not apply to anyone who is currently serving or even throughout their term. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get elected again, then it could be applied to you. But that's the only way to do it. And just to clarify, uh, county commissioners, I believe, each make at least six figures. I don't think any makes below $100,000. I might be wrong, but I know I it's at least correct. close to hundred. So you would advocate for around $100,000 for city council pay? Yes, I think, okay. that, I think that would seem appropriate. Now, okay. I, you know, we can certainly argue you know, plus or minus in the percentages, but I think sure. that's appropriate. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Charlie. Um, kind of a league issue here with regards to voter turnout and how we can kind of do better on sure. that. Um, what are your thoughts on moving spring municipal elections that you're currently involved in to the fall? Um, again, not necessarily in a presidential or gubernatorial year, but in a school board year, keeping it local, right? Because in the fall, we're, we turn right back around and do this again in the fall mm -hmm. um, to help, again, increase voter turnout and save the city um, approximately $600,000 per year doing that so i would say i, I certainly have no um, reason to oppose what you're saying um i'll just say i i would have to take your word on the on the fact that moving it to the fall would increase voter turnout um assuming that that is true absolutely that's a good thing um i would advocate for that if if that's true i'm just not aware of that um and then certainly for the cost of it 
yes, absolutely. If there's uh, that much of a cost savings, the date is rather arbitrary, and most people associate elections with November anyway. Yes, so. sir, they do. You'll approximately 30% voter turnout when you have a city municipal election, like 30 to 40, mm-hmm. if you're really, really, really lucky with as many candidates as we have, maybe we'll hit 40, maybe. right? We're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, sir. Of course. Appreciate it. All right. So that's the end of the specific questions. Maybe take just a couple minutes to wrap us up and uh, remind voters why they should vote for you. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Um, so as I've mentioned in the past, my, my pitch to everyone is that um, I'm a scientist and that that's how I view um, the world, and that's how I will approach this positioning council. Um, We have a lot of serious issues coming up that deal with very complex, multi-state and even international problems. Inflation, cost of energy, water allocation, these are not just local problems that can be fixed with someone fixing a valve or telling someone else to turn their sprinklers off. They're very large problems, and so we need perspective on the council that understands what's going on. So we need businessmen, we need military people, we need doctors, we need nurses, we need teachers, but we also need people who know the science, who know the geology, know the water cycle, and understand what it means when the utilities department explains what our resources really are. Those decisions are just too important not to have that voice to lend some kind of uh, credence to what's going on. I think that based on the growth in population, the lack of fire evacuation plans, robust planning is a real problem. I've worked with the Army Corps of Engineers a number of times directly assisting with hurricane responses, Dolly, Edward, Gustav, Ike. I've worked directly with them leading survey teams and emergency management on very large scales. And it's very complicated and requires planning. If you don't do it, people do lose their lives. And so I I understand we have these zones that tell you whether or not you should leave, and there's an app. But when I look into it, all it tells you is that you should leave. (laughs) It doesn't tell you where to go or how to go or where the fire is or what the problem is. It just says, gee, pack your bags and go. Mm -hmm. But if everybody gets the same message, then we're all stuck. You know, it, it just repeats itself. So... With my experience in emergency management and my direct direct involvement with geological science, um, I think I lend a perspective that's lacking and sorely needed on the council. All right. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you Scott. Uh, and you've been watching or listening to a joint podcast effort by 6035 Media and the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. Be sure to follow Making Democracy Work and check out lwvppr.org for more information about our candidate forums in March. And stick around with 6035 Vote to make sure your vote is an informed one. This podcast is produced and directed by Dave Gardner. I'm Brian Grossman, Executive Editor. And I'm Shelley Roars, Spokesperson for the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. See you next time. Hi, I'm Dave Gardner. And I'm Nick Raven. We're the podcast producers here at 6035 Media. 6035 Vote is just one of a growing family of hyperlocal podcasts that we're creating. And these are for you, someone who wants to engage fully in your community. We've got the 6035, which is a quick, lively recap of the top news stories of the week. It's my favorite. It's really great and often funny. I love having you as a guest, actually. I do, too. And then we have Hot Takes and Stirring Breaks, which is a potpourri of news and commentary about movies, gaming, TV, streaming, and just so much more. It's for youthful heart and you know, that could be anyone, really. Yeah, I'm surprised I even really enjoy it because Nick hosts that and uh, he's, he's witty. 
Well, and the cool thing is that you can watch both of these podcasts on YouTube. Or you can listen to them on the go in your favorite podcast app. And there's a couple more, uh, but you can also visit 6035media.org slash podcast to see them, browse them, sample them. And then subscribe to the ones that you like. And then subscribe to this YouTube channel. Yeah. And if you really love it all, like we do, uh, you, can we do. Just, you can just subscribe to the 6035 Podcast Network podcast, which is a conglomeration of all the episodes, all the brilliance and humor that emanates from the studio. Absolutely. And there's a lot of it. So like and subscribe today and go listen to them all or watch them. What he said. Good. Thanks. Got it? That wasn't so painful.